Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. Today's Town Hall Forum is originating from Wesley Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is David Nasby and I will be moderating today's forum. Our speaker is Craig Kielberger. His topic is an uprising by children against child labor. Craig Kielberger was 12 years old when he first became aware of the problem of child labor and the exploitation of children. He read a newspaper account of another 12-year-old, a Pakistani young man, Iqbal Moshi. Iqbal was sold into slavery at the age of four and shackled to a weaver's loom to make carpets. He escaped six years later at the age of 10 only to be murdered two years later. Shocked at the differences between his life and Iqbal's, Craig researched the issue of child labor and organized his friends and classmates into an organization, Free the Children. Today there are more than 100 chapters of Free the Children, all working to educate the public about the worldwide issue of child labor. Craig Kielberger is an amazing example of wisdom and of courage at a very young age. He has certainly debunked the notion that children, that young people have nothing serious to contribute to government policy debates. We are very proud to have him with us today. Welcome to Minneapolis and to the Town Hall Forum, Craig. Thank you very much. There are so many people to thank, in fact, for organizing this event that I don't even know where to begin. But I would like to thank out two groups in particular. The first is the Resource Center of the Americas for all their work and dedication on human rights and seeking greater social justice for all. And second is the Westminster Town Hall Forum for organizing opportunities like this for citizens and people of all sectors to voice their views on important societal and government issues. As mentioned, I was 12 years old when I first read the story of Iqbal Masih, when I first learned how at the age of 10, he stood before an audience in Boston and holding a carpet tool in one hand he held a pencil in the other, and he spoke about freedom, the freedom of children, the freedom of children in his country and the freedom of children around the world. His name was Iqbal Masih, and at the age of four, he was sold into bondage, a virtual slave, to tie tiny knots 12 hours a day, six days a week, weaving carpets. At the age of 12, he was murdered. And I was also 12 years old at this point, and I had never heard about child labor. You know, for, to be honest with you, in fact, I wasn't even sure where Pakistan was on the world map. And I certainly knew little about a world in which 250 million children labor every day. But that day, when I reached across the kitchen table, looking for the comic section 
in the local newspaper. That day when I came across the article about Iqbal Masih, that day my life was forever changed. Over the past three years, I've had the chance to travel around the world and to meet with many children who are suffering. I've met children living on the streets of some of the world's largest cities, sleeping on cement, sleeping in the gutters, literally amongst the rats and in the cold. I've met children in Haiti as young as five years old sold as domestic servants. Children in India pouring molten metal without any protective gear. I've stood by children working in the sugarcane fields of Brazil and watched as they use huge machetes that are razor sharp in order to cut the sugarcane. And all it takes is a single mistake and you cut off a hand or you slash a leg or you cut a foot. I even walked the streets of Pat Pong, a notorious red light district in Bangkok, Thailand, with an undercover police officer whom in my presence was offered an eight-year-old boy for his sexual pleasures. I still remember, in fact, some children who I will never forget, especially one boy named Negashir, who was the same age as many of the young people with us here today. At the age of seven, he was sold into bondage to work as a carpet weaver. And he worked from seven in the morning until 10 at night. He worked 15 hours every day. And for his labor, he was given one bowl of watery dal and rice. That was all. And Negashir showed me scars which ran all down his body, down his hands, down his arms, his face, his chest, even on his throat, on his voice box, where he had been branded with red-hot irons as a punishment for helping his youngest brother escape from bondage. Or one boy who I will never forget, a young boy who I helped accompany back to his parents after he was freed from bondage. And after being away, taken away for his family for three years, he looked at his mother and said, whenever I cried for you, the master would beat me. So I spoke to you in my dreams that night. And his mother then in turn looked at him and said, I too spoke to you in my dreams. Now it's easy for us in the Western nations to look at these people and to shudder at the way they treat their children. But at the same time, injustice, poverty, homelessness, abuse, all these things are not only isolated to the developing world. Even here in the United States, a recent report entitled A Nation's Shame, Fatal Child Abuse and Neglect states that every year in the United States, 2,000 American children die at the hands of their parents because of abuse, and because of neglect. The United States ranks first in this world, first amongst industrialized countries for military technology and exports, first for gross national product, 
first for military expenditures, first for the number of millionaires and billionaires in this world. But it ranks last out of the industrialized nations, 18th out of 18, for the gap between the rich and the poor. In fact, since 1980, over 50,000 American children have been shot dead by guns on the streets of the United States, in their homes, in their communities, in their schools. That is more child gun casualties than all the American casualties during the entire Vietnam War. Or even in Canada, a country recently named by the United Nations as the best place in the world in which to live. Child poverty is at a 17-year high. 40% of those who use food banks are under the age of 18, and 25% of our homeless are children. In 1990, leaders from around the world came together and drew up the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And this lists the most basic rights of children, the right to an education, the right to be protected from abuse and exploitation, the right to be treated with dignity and with worth. And yet, this child abuse continues. In fact, over 190 countries have ratified this convention, and yet the child abuse continues. Protecting our children, I believe, is the true test for our humanity. For if not protecting and taking care of our children, what values, what legacies will carry us into the new millennium? If the World Bank and if the International Monetary Fund can hold governments accountable for bad loans, then why is there no mechanism in regards to the protection of children, our world's most important resource? I'm not sure how many of you know, but this is actually a very special year because it's the 50th anniversary of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. And there's a campaign currently underway led by political leaders and led by citizens challenging the United States to ratify the, to ratify the convention dealing with economic, social, and cultural rights, guaranteeing them for all people here in America. And I encourage all the people, young and young at heart, to become involved in this campaign, to raise your voice against poverty, against homelessness, against injustice. Because we must ask ourselves, we must look into our hearts and ask ourselves, do we believe that all children, all children have the same rights? That all young people are created equal? And if injustice, if poverty, if exploitation is wrong for middle-class kids in North America, then why should it be any different for a girl in Thailand, a boy in Brazil, or a child living in the slums of inner city United States? When I was 
13 years old, a radio talk show host in Toronto, stated that he believed I was not normal. At 13, he claimed I should be interested in nothing more than sex and girls and playing video games, but certainly not human rights. And over the past three years, I've had the chance to travel around the world and have seen two extremes in this globe. An extreme in many developing countries where children our ages are forced to work 15 hours a day in factories and fields. They fight in wars. They support entire families. And this is obviously too much responsibility. Their young bodies and minds are destroyed, and this is wrong. But then here, in countries like the United States and Canada, I would say it's another extreme, that children are not given a voice, not given the opportunity to become involved, not challenged to be citizens of this world. And this is yet another extreme. This is also wrong, because children cannot develop to their full potential. Some people may question this. Some people may say that by becoming involved in social issues, we as children will lose our childhood. But I believe that every day when young people pick up the newspaper, when they turn on the television, when they listen to the radio, when they hear all the problems and injustices that exist in this world, they want to help. And we as youth, can either grow up being bystanders, simply closing our eyes and becoming immune to the suffering of the people around us. Or we can be taught that we do have a voice and that we have the power to change the world. Because every year corporations spend billions and billions of dollars on young people, on children, here in the United States. Why? In promoting logos, soft drinks, music, the Spice Girls. Corporations realize that the way to influence long-term change, the way to change minds and hearts, is to change the ideas of young people, change the ideas and beliefs of the next generation. But how much time and energy and resource do we truly invest in challenging our young people to care about citizens in their home country and around the world? How often do we challenge youth to feel a sense of responsibility for their fellow human beings? Three years ago, after I read the article about child labor, I was forced to ask myself a question. It's the same question I want to ask all the young people and all the adults here today. I was forced to ask myself, is it morally right? Should children be forced to work as slaves? And even though I was only 12 years old, the same age as many of the young people in the audience here today, I called together a group of friends. And over pizza and pop, we came up with a crazy idea. We wanted to start a group of children to help children. And we called it Free the Children, to free children not only from abuse and exploitation, 
but to free children from the idea that we're powerless, that we have no role to play in today's society. We are trying to challenge youth to realize that we have the power to change the world by helping one person at a time. And our movement has now grown to include young people in over 20 countries around the world and over 100 chapters, all run by young people, children raising their voice in defense of children. Through letter-writing campaigns and petitions, we are challenging governments to make education and the protection of children a priority. Some corporations have come under attack as a result of sweatshop-free campaigns in which we challenge multinational corporations going into third world countries. Our members have testified before congressional hearings in the United States, UN bodies in Europe, and teachers groups and parents, challenging them to allow youth to have a greater voice in issues which affect them. There's an African proverb, which I'm sure many of you have heard, that states, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, we also believe that it takes children to help raise a village. Through my travels, I've had the opportunity to meet with many street and working children. And these children have truly become my heroes because I believe that we in countries like the United States have a lot to learn from these children about sharing, about friendship, about giving. These children don't have much in the name of material possessions, but they do have their friends. If you hand an orange to a street girl in Thailand, she will automatically take that orange, peel it, break it, and share it with her friends. There's no question about the matter. I remember I was in India, and I saw a street child there who was crippled, who had no legs. And his friends were carrying him from place to place so he wouldn't be left behind. I believe that we, too, have a lot to learn from these children. And as I close, some of you may say that these problems that I've described are simply too large, too overwhelming. We can't do great things. We can't change the world. Well, Mother Teresa once said, we can do no great things, but we can do small things with great love. And I had the chance to meet Mother Teresa while I was in Calcutta. And actually, she was, she was a tiny woman, in fact. She wasn't the head of a corporation. She wasn't the head of a government. She wasn't wealthy. She didn't have a private jet. But she still had more power than you could ever imagine. Why? Because she had a big heart. And that's what made her a powerful woman. And a friend of mine once asked her, how do you do it? How do you work day in and day out with all these people around you who are suffering and who are dying? And she responded, they die one at a time, so I save them one at a time. Every struggle to end injustice, 
whether it be poverty or homelessness or child labor, always at first seems impossible. Those who campaigned to end the slave trade across the Atlantic were met with enormous opposition and were told they would never succeed. Women who called for the right to vote were laughed at. When Rosa Parks refused to sit in the back of a bus, she started a campaign for racial equality that most said she had no chance of winning. Advances in human rights have always been made by those people who were bold enough to believe that they had the power to change the world, who refused to listen when all others told them, you can't do it, the problems are too large, you're being simplistic, it's too overwhelming, give up. As Margaret Mead once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Thank you very much. When you uh, first read the story in Ottawa, or in, in your hometown, in Canada, about uh, the young Pakistani, um, and decided you wanted to do something about it. What kind of support uh, for your initiative did you receive from your parents and your teachers? And to the uh, parents and teachers in this room and to, in fact, all the audience, all the adults listening, I would like to say how incredibly important it is to have adult support. We need adults to believe in us. You know, especially not to underestimate our abilities, our abilities to do good and not to be afraid to challenge us. When I turned to my parents and I said, Mom, Dad, I had this idea. I want to start a human rights group led by children. If they had looked at me and said, Oh, son, that's a horrible idea. Go do your homework. Go do something else. You know, I wouldn't be here today. I was incredibly lucky that my parents and teachers and friends supported me. And that's what makes the difference. But all too often, we find there's a lack of support by parents, by teachers. I'm always amazed when I travel to some developing nations and I see drug dealers who have enough faith in children to run their drugs. But then when I return to some developed countries and I see parents and teachers that don't put enough faith in their own children. Uh, this, uh, this question I'm sure comes from a student who uh thinks that they aspire to what you're doing. The question is, how'd you get enough money to travel around the world? Whenever I travel, whenever any member of Free the Children travels, the group that, inviting, that is inviting us finds sponsors to cover all of our costs. It's a prerequisite because when someone gives us a donation, 100% every single penny goes directly to our projects to help alleviate poverty and child labor. We don't spend any money on travel. Even all speaking honorariums, the sale of my book that recently came out, everything that we raise, all 100% goes directly to our projects. And this really, in a sense, uh, follows up on that. It's about the, the movement itself that you've uh, stimulated. How did you turn your initial idea, that news story that you read, 
into a worldwide organization? What were the steps, the conscious steps that you took? You know, the most difficult part in truly founding Free the Children came from the fact that we were young. It was our greatest advantage, and yet it was our greatest obstacle. Because adults would look at us, a group of 12-year-olds, and they would say, oh, how cute, you know, this little group of kids, everything they're doing. And, you know, they would kind of pat us on our heads and kind of shoo us along. But they didn't truly listen to our message. Even at 15, I still run into those trouble all the time, truly challenging adults to open their ears and open their minds, but especially their hearts, to what we're saying. But we learned that the key was research. The key to empower young people is knowing the facts and the statistics to back up your views and to back up what you're saying. Knowledge equals power. When you're able to truly challenge adults, to challenge the heads of governments, to challenge the head of multinational corporations, and able to defend your views, that empowers you and gives you the credibility necessary to carry a movement from a local youth group into a group with over 20 countries around the world involved. Um, uh, going back to, the, to that story, that initial story, one, a student has a question, who do you think murdered Iqba? It's still, it is still a mystery. You know, originally one person was arrested, has since been released because of lack of evidence. At the same time, no one knows. Some say it's the government, some say it's the carpet mafia, some just say it was an accident. You know, it is a mystery. And I don't think we ever will find out, but the most important fact that what you must keep in mind is it's not how he was killed, but what he stood for when he was alive. How he stood for youth speaking up how he believed in the rights of all children, regardless rich or poor, regardless of the color of your skin or religious background. What he believed and spoke out for is what we must remember and never forget. A student says, I'm in a group called the SAACP. Do you think there is a connection between child labor, abuse, and racism? Very good question. I would say that yes, because of some racial inequality, whether it be for not only color of skin, but also for religion, etc., it does help perpetuate the cycle of poverty and of child labor. For example, and this is only one of many examples, if you go to a country like India, where in some of the rural areas the caste system is still embedded, it's almost a system that dictates where you are on the social ladder, rich or poor, educated or non-educated. And it's very difficult in the rural areas to break free of this chain that in many ways can drag you down. And so yes, because of stereotypes, because of believing that one group is less important, less human than another, that does perpetuate poverty. But we see this every day. Even look at the big tobacco companies today. They're pulling out of America and they're finally saying, okay, we will not in any way advertise near children here. But if you go to foreign nations, you know, walk right out of a school, you see billboards, you know, of cigarettes being advertised to children. It's like stating, well, here in America, children are good enough that we will not, you know, throw our product in their faces. But however, in a foreign country, in a less developed nation, well, we don't care as much about the rights of children there. And this is only one of many examples. Have you ever been threatened with physical harm? No, none of our members 
regardless, wherever they are in this world, whether regardless of their chapter base, have ever been threatened. And that's the great part, especially about living in America. You know, our rights are protected, your rights are protected, and that allows you to raise your voice to challenge those around the world in nations where there is repression, where there's abuse, where people cannot necessarily raise their voices. Who are the, who are, who are the children that have influenced you? Hmm. I have had the chance to meet with many children over the past three years. And in fact, these are the children who really do inspire me the most and have become my heroes. And I remember there's one group of children in particular that stands out in my mind, um, a group of children I met in Brazil. And they range in ages from 8 until 14, the same age as a lot of the children here with us today. And basically, we sat down and we talked. They spoke about their life. They spoke about how they ended up on the streets. And they even showed me where they lived, a simple bus shelter where they would cover themselves with loose pieces of cardboard and newspaper to stay warm. And one of the street children there, a young boy by the name of Jose, asked me if I wanted to play a game of soccer. And you know, I, I readily agreed, actually I love soccer. But then I looked around wondering, well, where is this soccer ball going to come from? Because street children are so poor that they don't even own a soccer ball with which to play. And one of the street children quickly dashed off and they began looking all over the ground until he picked up an old plastic water bottle. Someone had simply thrown it away. And I remember he waved it back and forth and he said, we have our ball. We can now begin. Because a street child does not own something as simple as a soccer ball. And eventually night came and I had to say goodbye to these children. I was actually going on to Rio de Janeiro the next day. And that same boy, that 14-year-old street child named Jose, told me that he wanted to give me something to remember the group by. And you know, a street child, they have, they have no home, no possessions. Street children literally don't have a single penny to their name. And so he stopped, you know, thinking a second, what could he give me? And so he gave me the only thing which he could. And he gave me the shirt right off his back. And, you know, it was an old soccer jersey. It was torn and had a few holes. But it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, of course I said I couldn't take it. This was his only shirt. But he put it on my shoulder and he said, I want you to have it. And it didn't matter to him that this was his only shirt. It didn't matter to him that he would be cold that night. He just thought of giving, just thought of friendship, of sharing. And so I did the only thing which I could. And I gave him my t-shirt in return. And, you know, actually I framed that shirt and I put it on my wall. And I'm going to forever keep it there. To remind me of the lessons that the street children taught me. That taught me the lessons about sharing, about giving, about helping. And I honestly mean, I think we in the West have a lot to learn from these children. Another student says, if I wanted to start a group that helped children, how can I get other people to believe that I'm serious about succeeding? Well, first of all, you have to be serious about succeeding yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, no one will. I'll be very honest with you. At the same time, if you're fired with passion, if you truly want to help, 
if you had the facts and statistics to back you up, and if you had the courage to stand up and challenge your friends, your peers, your classmates, they will respond. They will join you. At first, you know, I was worried. I was 12 years old. I knew nothing about the issue. But I simply stood up in front of my class. I said, listen, I need your help. And we started out about 10 of us. And as our message began to spread, more people also got involved. More people also felt inspired to action. And that's the most important thing, to have that courage to stand up and challenge your friends, challenge your parents, challenge those around you. Remember, we have to be at least as courageous as the children who we represent. I was wondering, where have you received your knowledge? Do you go to school? What are your future plans? Oh, of course I go to school. Both my parents are teachers. They would never let me off the hook with school. But at the same time, I go to a slightly alternative school. It's a typical government school. It's not a private school. However, students teach themselves. And they arrange their, their own agenda, one could say. They write tests when they want. They meet with their teachers when they want. They do everything on their own schedule. Basically, the attitude is, if you want to fail, go right ahead. If you want to get a good mark, you have to work hard. You have to arrange your schedule. You have to ensure that you have that commitment. But to a certain extent, I believe there's only so much we can learn in a typical classroom. For example, through volunteerism, through helping others, it's amazing how much we receive back in return. We learn leadership skills, empathy, self-respect. We learn that we may be young, but we do have the power to change the world by helping one person at a time. I even, for example, when I look at today, I look at our heroes in this world, I believe that every school should set aside at least one day to honor and to pay tribute to our heroes, heroes in our communities, heroes at an international level. I'm talking about people like Mother Teresa, people like Martin Luther King, people like Mahatma Gandhi, people who caused us to believe in ourselves and to believe that we had the power to change the world. Because we see all the problems, but I think we have to see more of the solutions, more of the change that is coming about. Now, Craig, I realize that you're not a U.S. citizen, and actually we, uh, we had an election here 10 days ago. But uh, the questioner here says, are you thinking of running for governor? <laughs> no, I, I, don't think, um, I don't think politics is my calling, to tell you the truth. Um, I mean this in a very nice way, but I've met too many politicians. And I find, in a very nice way, very nice way, it just, I find you're, you're limited sometimes on your personal beliefs and on the type of actions that you can take, you know, just off the cuff. You can't just follow your heart in all cases. And that's something I hope to do. I actually want to become involved with international conflict mediation, which is, uh, you know, when there are all the wars going on in this world, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, you know, ex-Yugoslavia, it's a person who helps negotiate peace deals and helps work to help mend cultural and religious differences between nations or between groups. You know, on your, on, in your traveling, you have seen so much more than any of us have seen. I mean, we participate perhaps vicariously reading the newspaper the way you got started. 
But uh, you see all these uh, terrible things. Do you, on occasion, go back and try to reconnect with the communities and the people? And tell us a little bit about that. In fact, I'm not sure how many of you remember that story I told at the beginning about the young boy named Negashir, the young boy who had been branded with hot irons when he escaped. Actually, I was back in India just a month ago, and I had the chance to meet with him again. And in fact, one of the nicest parts about visiting these children and hearing their hopes and their dreams and their struggles is that we become friends. You know, even though I'm halfway around the world, often I can still stay in touch with these children through local human rights organizations. When I travel back, I try to seek them out and just to see how they're doing. And often we run, you know, for example, schools and rehabilitation centers we open. We distribute cows and sewing machines or buy farmland for poor families, things like this to help support them, to help provide alternative sources of income. So we often stay in touch with them through local human rights workers. And that's the main message in many ways I'm trying to get across here today, that these children are no different than any one of us, no different than your brothers or sisters, no different than your sons or daughters. These children have hopes and they have dreams and they have hearts and, and, and they, want, they want a chance to be children and they deserve at least that much. Are, is it the case that there are basically no laws in most countries related to child labor? Oh, there are phenomenal laws around the world. Some of the most comprehensive in the world exist in developing nations. They're, I want to congratulate them on their, their wonderful laws. It's a question but, of implementing them. You know, it, and it's not only a question of laws. It's one thing to say, implement the laws. It's another thing to actually talk about land distribution, wealth distribution, the rights of the girl child, making education a priority, all these things like this. You know, people in this world say that poverty can't be eliminated because we don't have the resources. But every year, this world spends $800 billion on the military. We spend $250 billion on advertising. We spend $180 billion on beer and $40 billion on golf. But all... All it, all it would take is an additional $6 billion every year to put every single child in school by the year 2000. But we can't find that, apparently. <laughs> this, uh, this question is from a uh, strategic thinker, a strategic planner, or a teacher, or a student, or maybe all of the above. There you go. What was the very first step you took with your friends after the pizza and pop after toward creating free free the children. Recycling the pop cans. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, in, in fact, the very first step we took was research. And I cannot stress this enough. Do you know what will give you as young people, or adults even, the power to stand up in front of the press? Or to stand up in front of the President of the United States or in front of your friends or co-workers? It's always knowledge. And that's the most important thing I've realized as a young person that we need to empower us. And not only, you know, facts and statistics about wars that happened and countries that were overtaken and this and that, but also concrete knowledge we can implement in our own lives. For example, we just celebrated Remembrance Day. 
Um, you have a different name for it in the United States. Um, Veterans Day. Veterans Day. We just celebrated Veterans Day. And you know, it's wonderful to learn about the sacrifices that existed, and that's incredibly important. But for example, while we learn about the atrocities that were committed in the war, we should also learn how in our own lives we can take those messages and implement them. For example, as we learn about World War II, why not go and volunteer our time at an organization that helps recent arrived immigrants, help teach them English? Or for example, even for students, if there's a new person in your class who recently arrived, help take them around, show them the school. You know, there are tons of ways that we can take these messages and actually implement them in our own lives. Where have you seen the worst conditions for child labor in your travels? No, I wouldn't say one country's the worst. If you look at India, for example, it has 55 million child laborers, the highest number in the world. If you look at a country like China, for example, though, it's very difficult for human rights workers to actually find estimates, to get in and to actually meet with the workers. If you look at some nations in this world, they state that child labor is against the law, therefore it doesn't even exist. And you know, it's, I wouldn't want to highlight one nation because even we in the West preach what a wonderful nation we are and we have our own problems. I think that everyone in this world has a problem. We have to look in our own lives also. Uh, focusing on the West and on us, uh, the U.S. has not ratified the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child, largely because the, the, of the, uh, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee won't let the topic come to the floor. Have you had the opportunity, or if you had the opportunity, would, what would you say to the uh, Foreign Relations Committee about debating the treaty and the necessity to do this? Well, I think I would point out two facts. The first is that every nation in this world excluding Somalia, has ratified the convention, or has at least signed the convention. And the reason Somalia has not signed it is because they don't have a government in place. And so the U.S. is pretty much alone on this. And the second issue I would say is that, you know, the U.S., what, we, what it stands for is freedom. You know, that's the first thing I think about when I think of the United States. I think of the Statue of Liberty. You know, what is it? Give us the poor. You know, give us your outcasts. We will help them. I don't know the exact phrase, but that's what pops into my mind. It's a land of freedom. And what it stands for, its fundamental beliefs are incredible. The rights for all, a chance for all to, you know, have jobs, have home, have family, have safety. And I think that in the United States, unless they ratify and implement the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, I think the reputation has certainly and will continue to be tarnished. No, but it, uh, it seems kind of strange to ask a 16-year-old, but... Uh, 15. 15-year-old. Oh, my God. I was still trying to figure out how to use the remote control, I think. Um, what have been some of your setbacks? I mean, you're engaged in some really difficult work. What are the setbacks? I think our greatest setback are some adults out there who still don't take us seriously. You know, I'm amazed at some of the conferences I attend. And our members get confused for children of delegates, for, you know, waiters and people who do photocopying for them. You know, people will constantly come up to me at conferences and say, 
oh, can you go photocopy this for me? You do work here, don't you? You know, it's, I'm always amazed, in fact, how society has, you know, pushed down young people. Like, even if you, I attend the World Economic Forum in Davos every year, and there they define young people as under 48 years of age. Because I guess if, you know, under 30, well, you're just not capable. Under 40, you're not capable. You have to be 48 to finally become an adult. You know, what's going, Bill Gates was in the same group. He was a young person. You know, it's, I'm always amazed, in fact, that's our, our greatest problem. That society tries to stick young people in a box to state that we will develop the same interests, develop in the same ways, develop at the same times. And I think the fact how they show and push down young people sometimes is a pretty depressing picture of society. And that's constantly our greatest challenge, to break through that stereotype that youth have nothing to offer to government, political, societal debates in general. As an example of the fact that he lives uh, what he says, uh, one of the, there's a question here. Do you have someone that takes you from place to place? And I think underneath this is the assumption that your mom or dad or somebody... Why don't you introduce Alex? <laughs> I would like to introduce you to my chaperone here. Alex, do you want to come up here for a few moments? Um, hi, I'm Alex Apostolopoulos. I'm, that's a Greek name. Apostolopoulos. <laughs> yes. Did I do it pretty well? Yeah, that was good. very good. <laughs> um, I come from Canada, actually just north of Toronto, Thornhill, just where Craig grew up also. And I go to a school called Westmount Sea Collegiate Institute. And I got involved with Free the Children recently over the summer. And I should be starting my own public speaking fairly soon. Whenever I travel, or whenever any quote-unquote older, over 15, travels, we always travel with actually another young person. Because, for example, Alex will soon be out speaking himself, carrying his message, you know, going on the trips, challenging others to action. We always try to ensure that there's, you know, a fresh new young people continuing the movement. Even at 15, my role changes. Soon I will be no more, as not much of a spokesperson, as instead a person who works behind the scenes in the office, coordinating, working with leadership, speaking skills, etc. And we always have new members who constantly move up to ensure that our mission, that the torch, is constantly handed to the new generation of youth. We don't want our membership have to constantly raise it to 48 to keep it youth. You know, we need adults, we need your help as lawyers, accountants, advisors, etc. We don't have all the answers, nor do we preach to. But at the same time, we want to make sure that our heart and our soul is always run by children and children speaking on behalf of children. Greg. Greg, if you need some copies made, just bring them to me. I'll provide the support. Thank you, Craig Kielberger, for your thought-provoking and uh, a wonderful example of uh, what youth can be doing and should be doing and the leadership that you've provided. Thank you to also to our audience and as well as our radio audience. Thank you very much. Thank you.